Jnana-timarandasya Jnananjana Shalakaya Chakshurun Vidatam Dinashi Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Thank you. Welcome, everyone. The, the Saturday morning program, there's lots of songs, and some of them, all of them, are in see, there's Sanskrit and Bengali. So the, uh, the singing of, of songs is, of course, been in human society for many years. It's one of the ways in which humans pass down the culture from one generation to the next through songs and through dramas and things like that. But this song is especially powerful. And even though many of these songs are in a different language, they're not in English, the, uh, they're full of uh, names of Krishna. And just by hearing them and the mood of the song and being amidst the those who are practicing devotional service who are singing them, even if, if we don't know the complete meaning of them at first, there's a, a kind of a change of heart that can take place because by the association of those who are feeling devotion and singing, that kind of uplifts us and enters into our minds and heart and we get transformed. So it's one of the ways that Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is Krishna himself, but who came as a devotee to teach the process of devotional service 500 years ago, taught the process of devotional service to everyone and also enacted it himself, especially in his later years. Well, throughout his life, he always engaged as a, a bhakti practitioner in chanting and hearing. And in his later years, when he reclused himself in Jagannath Puri, he spent most of his time with two of his main associates, Ramananda Roy and Surup Damodar. And there were specific songs that they would sing that would awaken in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu his uh, sense of devotion. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu set the example for how one can advance in devotional service. And Devotional service is the natural inclination of the soul because we're not complete in ourselves unless we're connected to the complete whole. We're parts of the complete whole. Krishna mentions this in the Bhagavad Gita when he says, That is that the living entities, that's us, we're individuals eternally. We have eternal cognition. And that's because we're of the same quality as Krishna, but we're fragmental parts, just as much as the sun ray has the same qualities as the sun, but it's fragmented. It's a part of the sun. It's not the whole sun. And when the parts and parcels are aware of Krishna and connected with Krishna through devotional service, also called bhakti yoga, then they feel complete in themselves, and they are complete. However, when I forget about my source, and I think that I'm separate, then I feel fear and anxiety, because I'm not complete in, in myself, nor can I find completeness 
outside of turning my attention back to the complete whole. And the way that we turn our attention back to the complete whole is through service, divine service. And that service helps us to remember Krishna. And Krishna's a person, just as we're persons and we're conscious. And he reciprocates with the parts and parcels. In fact, he's always ready to reciprocate. The notion that we've been forgotten or abandoned is not accurate. But it's a psychology that takes place or a mood that takes place when we see darkness. The uh, thought comes into my head, woe is me, and why am I being victimized? But the solution is so close at hand, and that is being reconnected in our consciousness to Krishna, that anyone who does that even a little bit will start to feel again revived in, the, in his or her natural state, which is to be happy. And that's mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna says, Brahma Bhuta Prasanatma Nashochati Nakankshati Samaksarveshu Bhuteshu Madbhaktim Labhate Param. He mentions the state of somebody who's touching transcendence or becoming spiritualized. So there are symptoms. It's not guesswork. And the first is Prasanatma, which means he becomes happy. And it's not the kind of happiness happiness that's dependent on some external circumstance. For instance, people s seem to get a little happier around the holidays, especially before. And then afterwards, there's a sense of, <clears throat> oh, I have to go back to my life. And these are s circumstantial. But the soul doesn't need a particular circumstance to be happy. The circumstance that we're in already is that we're part of Krishna. And when we remember it, then we naturally become happy. It's called prasannatma, that the, you're a happy soul, jolly. And that's a first symptom. And one might feel that after chanting Hare Krishna. For instance, this morning we did a bit of austerity by sitting and just chanting. There may have been a million other things that you were supposed to do or thought you should do, but you did this instead. And you got up early, even though we were up late last night chanting down in Palo Alto. But you did the austerity, and then afterwards, there's a sense of spiritual connection through chanting. And that happens when we practice bhakti. We'll start to get indications that actually this is in tune with my nature. And then we'll start to also feel out of tune with lower vibrations. That's a good sign also. It's called vairagya. Brahma Bhutta Prasanatma, the first is what? First symptom. Natural what? No, no. What's the first I just said? I'm just reviewing. Happiness. Happy. You're happy and jolly and... The second is nashochati nakankshati, which is indicative of the fact that these words mean hankering and lamentation. So hankering is a product of the rajaguna, that I think I need something to be happy. And I, I hanker for it. Could you look up the word hanker, please? Where do you think it comes from? 
It sounds German, doesn't it? Huh? Who speaks German? Go ahead. Bali, you speak German? <laughs> Dankeschön. Okay. Um, hanker is a verb. It means feel a strong desire for or to do something. And um, it comes from Old English hang. And it doesn't say what it means. Hang, H-A-N-G. H-A-N-G, yeah. And it also, yeah, and also it's related to Dutch hunkering. Dutch hunkering. Yeah. What does that mean from Dutch? Um, it does not say. It's to hang or to long. To hang or to long. Probably have to look at the word hang and see what its origins are. If you could get a subscription to the OED. Could be. It could have another obscure meaning, or not obscure back then, but it's just changed over time. Yeah. you have an OED? Yes. Um, you do? <laughs> uh, um, it, the origin is hankering. It's linger in expectation. Linger in expectation. That sounds like a lyric to a song. Lingering in expectation. <laughs> okay, lingering. It's just... Which is the state of material happiness. There's a kind of lingering in expectation of happiness. For instance, like somebody invites you for dinner and you go over and you're, th you're like really hungry. And they're talking and talking and you're thinking, when are they going to actually feed us? <laughs> and you hear somebody in the kitchen, but then the food never comes out. So linger, expectation of happiness. Prahlad Maharaj... The boy saint, five years old, he had uh, heard from his guru when he was in the womb. And then when he came out, he was perfectly enlightened. And who was there to greet him? His father, who was a uh, materialist through and through. In fact, he's the iconic materialist mentioned in the Vedas. In fact, his name, Hiranyakashipu, means gold and soft bed. And Prahlad, after being with his father for a while and trying to um, talk to him about Krishna consciousness, which resulted in his father wanting to kill him and actually trying to kill him. Anyway, he gave some prayers after his father died at the hands of Nishringadev, an incarnation of Krishna. He said, Kutra Shisha, Shuti Sukham Mrigatrishni Rupa, that the happiness that I'm hoping for lingering with lingering expectation it never comes because it's shruti sukham i hear about it shruti means to hear and sukham means happiness so it's happiness i hear about but it never actually arrives the meal never comes out of the kitchen <laughs> it's like it's all set up but it, it never actually happens and other uh, poets say that yes there is happiness in the material world you do get it but it's so small and insignificant that it doesn't satisfy you. And an example that uh, some of the teachers give is that if you're very thirsty, wandering in the desert, and you need water, you'd need like 
a big bottle or a few big bottles, right? To quench your thirst. But if someone came up and said, I'll give you water, and then they pull out an eyedropper, and they give you one drop, you can't deny that it's water, but it's not enough to satisfy. So the happiness in the material world is called chapala sukha, means that it's a flickering happiness, and it's insignificant. It doesn't actually satisfy. However, uh, the lingering continues because I don't have an alternative I don't know if where the source of happiness, if I don't know where the source of happiness is, I'll go one of two ways. One way is that I'll say that the problem is I'm desiring anything, so I'll stop all desire. And this is a philosophical uh, speculation that because I can't fulfill my hankering in the world, it ends up in misery, actually. I get a result of unhappiness when I try for happiness that therefore stop desiring altogether. But in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says this isn't possible because it's the nature of the living force to have desire. So Prahlad says, Mrikatrishni Rupa, that the happiness that we expect here in the material world is a mirage. So that's hopeful. Why is it hopeful? if it's a mirage, compared to, yes, Ananda Murari Prabhu? Because I shouldn't be surprised that I'm disappointed over and over again. Yes. And what else? Why else? Philosophically, just from a logical point of view. Vrindasevika? Uh, if there is a mirage, so there should be an original source. Right. Okay. So if, if you get counterfeit money, someone gives you a counterfeit $100 bill, it means there's a real one somewhere else because logically there can't be counterfeit without a real uh, $100 bill somewhere else. So same way with the idea of water. How, where would I get the idea? How would I know that it's water in the first place to be faked out by it unless there was real water somewhere else? So this is Prahlad's point that there is real water somewhere else. It's just that you haven't found it yet. So that's a different philosophical point than I'll just stop all desires altogether, which uh, isn't possible, according to Krishna and the Bhagavad Gita. Therefore, the devotional service, when one practices devotional service, one can actually taste something. And when that comes through, when the water starts coming through, the real water, then one feels naturally satisfied. And therefore, nashochati, nakankshati means that one isn't hankering with lingering expectations, hoping for some happiness that's never going to come, or lamenting about having had something and then lost it before. Lamentation, please. Lamentation is a noun. Lamentation. Noun from noun. the late 14th century, from old French lamentation, plaintive cry. Plaintive cry. And dur- what does a plaintive cry sound like? <laughs> we flew in for the sound effects. <laughs> a plaintive cry, yes? A lamentationum 
A wailing, moaning, a weeping. Wow. So lamentation. No hankering, no lamentation. When one actually touches a spiritual substance. And that reminded me of this idea of lamentation, a plaintive cry, weeping. That in the Srimad Bhagavatam, there's a poignant section in which we learn that living entities who are struggling in the material world, when we hear about struggle, what does it mean actually? Poetically says there's an ocean somewhere and it's the accumulation of the tears of all living beings because they're constantly lamenting or weeping. It's a very disappointing situation here. One might give one's heart and soul to a situation here in the material world, uh, like a family, a nation, an idea. And as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, in the material world, you get the opposite result that you were expecting. Prabhupada often gives the example of Gandhi. Gandhi wanted to unite the, uh, the various uh, cultural factions on the Indian subcontinent. However, it got completely divided. It went the opposite way. They said, let's just cut it in half. You can have that part, we'll have this part, and then we'll forever be at odds with one another. And he thought, well, that's the opposite of what I hoped for. And in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, uh, in speaking to Arjuna, is pointing out to him, look at these people lined up, and now you're fighting. You're fighting against many of your own family members. And Arjuna says, nimitani viparitani, nimitani viparitani. It's like, I've gotten the opposite result. Now if I fight, I'm going to lose everything I'm fighting for, which is to show the results of my heroism to my family, but they'll all be dead. So Krishna points out that in the material world, you get the opposite of what you were hoping for. And that's not true when you come in contact with the spiritual community and energy, is that you get what you were always hoping for, and that was, that's called a doham that there's a sense that I, it should work. Don't you have that sense? It should work out, but then it doesn't? Well, in approaching Krishna and the spiritual practice, there's a, a growing sense that, wow, this actually works. And it's actually fulfilling my desire, doham. I'm getting what I always wanted. And that is nashochati nakanchati, that I don't feel that lamentation and I'm not hankering for anything else. And then there's one more. Yes. I was just thinking about it, how different it is for spiritual uh, part. In the material world, we think that, yes, it has to happen, and it doesn't happen, it happens opposite. But in, this, in spiritual life, we want to, we doubt, okay, I'm not too sure whether we can achieve this, but then just because of all the Vaishnava's blessings, you're able to achieve a lot more than what you actually think. I was just thinking about Bhagavad Seva or anything when you said that make it global. And I was like, I don't know what, how to make it global. Uh, well, I was so doubtful, I didn't know what to do, but just, just followed what you said. So I was just thinking in spiritual way, uh, it totally, just dependency on Vaishnava just makes everything happen. But uh, in material world, it's <laughs> totally opposite. 
Yes. In fact, that's the uh, branding for our new campaign, Assume It Can Be Done. A new song, too, coming out today. You're going to like it. I can't uh, see who's on the upper left hand. Oh, is that Dave Avrata? He's in his Sankirtan van going out to, uh, to do battle, and there he is with his hand up. You drive carefully now, young man. <laughs> Dave Avrata, what's going on? Well, I was just thinking about the point that you were uh, bringing up about Sochitin Akashiti, this giving up hankering, and how generally people will deal with it by trying to give up all desire. Um, but that's a mental speculation. And I was just thinking because I was listening to a class this morning by Vishnu Jana Maharaj, and he was talking about this point that Srila Prabhupada brings up in, in the verse Visaraga Bayam Froda. Is giving up fear, and what is it we're fearful of? We're fearful of trying to develop a relationship on the spiritual platform because relationships on the material platform never work. So there's this fear that's innate, that's inherent within the living entity when they're conditioned. And so entering into positive spiritual life means giving up this fear of personal relationships. Excellent point, David Rattaprabhu. Thank you very much. Where are you, by the way? Somewhere in Mississippi. <laughs> okay. Are you on your way to Atlanta today? Yeah, I am. I'll be riding there in like four hours or so. Please give our best to all the devotees there. Have a great day. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Yeah, so he refers to a verse in the Bhagavad Gita that very much relates. Vitaraga Bhayakroda. And it's, Krishna starts with the word vita. And that means you, you have to give up. And then he names three things that you have to give up to advance on the spiritual platform. To the spiritual platform, the first one's raga, which means inordinate attachment to temporary things. And the next one is bhaya, means fear. And he just mentioned it. There's a, a fear because my relationships here in the material world end ultimately, even the best of them, they end unceremoniously by separation. For one has to give up the fear of relationships being temporary, because in the spiritual world they're not. Although, even in separation we feel connection in the spiritual realm. And the third is krodha, which means that because one has unresolved issues when defining spiritual philosophy. And after hearing many different opinions, and some of them I already mentioned, differing opinions would include, we're suffering because we desire, therefore I must give up all suffering, versus actually our desire is legitimate because we're living beings. We can't do anything else, but that's the nature of the conscious being is to desire. So how do you reconcile these two ideas? And then if you throw in a bunch more philosophy, like there actually is no living being because we're only a combination of matter. And if you hear various competing theories and somehow or other they're couched in such a way that they have a verisimilitude of truth, then you might become confused and then become angry, krodha, which means 
okay, there's so many different ideas, so many different, as people say, different religions in the world, they all have different ideas. Therefore, there must be no truth at all. And, and such a person becomes angry or agitated on hearing anyone present something uh, authoritatively because they say, no, nah, nobody knows anything. So Krishna says you have to give up that also. And so these are three ways that, that one can overcome the obstacles to spiritual progress. So the third, yes. Uh, as you mentioned that uh, we need to uh, give up uh, this attachment, temporary attachment. It sometimes sounds easy to speak, you know, but how practically one can do that? Uh, if you can give a few tips on that, that would be helpful. Yes. It's not a matter of giving up attachment. It's a matter of transferring one's attachment to reality. So it's good to be attached to Krishna and everything in relationship with Krishna because we're part, of, part and parcel of Krishna. So when you become attached to Krishna's devotees, that's a good attachment. And um, Narada Muni gives this example. He said, sometimes you take a thorn out with a thorn. So you have a thorn, and then you take another thorn to take it out of your arm because you're cutting roses or trimming them back this time of year because it's winter. And then you got a thorn in your arm. So you take another thorn and take it out. So what seems to be attachment to devotees is actually a way to become free from attachment to Janasanga, which means those who are random acquaintances in this material world that have nothing, no connection with Krishna. I mean, everything and everyone has a connection to Krishna, but as far as our relationship goes, it doesn't. So as an example, in relationships, when we become, when we develop relationships with devotees and we become attached to them, that's the thorn that takes out the other thorn. And that goes for all different types of desires. For instance, if we're attached to music and dancing, then if you just give up going to your weekly concert series, you may be left wanting. Because now what am I going to do? Because I like music. But if you find a transcendental concert series where you can go and have music and rhythm, but it's spiritual, then you've taken a thorn out with a thorn. You've replaced your propensity for hearing mu nice music. And what about food? That's, that's one of the main ones. And so that's not left out. There's transcendental eating, which means that there's a process for gathering food and then cooking it with the consciousness of love, that you're going to offer it to Krishna, and then you offer it. And then it, it's an entirely different experience to eat like that. And there's, there are no lack of tastes in Krishna consciousness. You have bitter in the form of bitter melon, my personal favorite. And then whatever other taste you have? Sweet, you jump right to the sweets, Priya. <laughs> you got so many sweets. 
Now, all living entities like sweets. Uh, name four. Four sweets. Rasgula, Gludjaman, Burfi, Sandesh. Simply wonderful. When I first joined I, admission, joined the Krishna Conscious Movement, I thought that spiritual practice mean, meant not eating. So I ate very little. In fact, I just found in some old transcripts uh, of my relationship with my mother, she was worried that I was just eating a handful of oats every day, uh, not even cooked. <laughs> and so when I got to the ashram, the devotees looked at me and said, you're too skinny, you got to eat. And so um, I didn't resist that for very long. I thought, okay, if you guys say it, then maybe it's okay. But I remember going, we used to go to concerts uh, downtown San Francisco at the Fillmore West, the place I used to go before I joined. And then they gave me, it was one of my first duties, a huge box of Simply Wonderfuls to pass out to people waiting in line. And my policy was one for you, two for me. <laughs> <laughs> So it's a true story. In fact, I walked around the block to finish chewing. So, <laughs> Nirakula. It's obviously all true what what you said, but then but then we have to add patience to that, because if we are following the um, the process and. Um, chanting and associating with devotees, taking prasadam like that, then, then all those other desires will be dovetailed and uh, just released without us even having to specifically uh, work hard at it. I mean, I know it, for me, prayer helps and, um, and the desire for for it to go away, but if we just follow the process, these these desires will just naturally go away, and they'll be replaced with something spiritual. But it sounds like you're saying the opposite thing, saying just have patience, it'll go away. But you're saying you don't have to try, or just by replacing them, you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It, um, I find that I'm, on my own volition, I can't do it. These, these desires and, and these anartas and all, they've been there for... Anartas means that there are... Arta means wealth or value, something you give value to it. Anarta means something that's valueless. As an example, like an attachment to smoking, it doesn't really do anything for you. Um, contrary to early advertisements about smoking. In fact, even now, it would make you look suave or... Uh, they used to have doctors that would, uh, no, so-called doctors. I guess they'd get away back then. If you wear a lab coat and a stethoscope around your neck, saying, hi, I recommend Lucky Strikes. And they would advertise as if it was something important. But when Prabhupada came, he said, You're, there was a kind of cigarette called Cool, spelled with a K. Cool cigarettes, menthol. And... They advertise him. Prophet saw the advertisement, and he said, "You're smoking hot fire into your lungs, and then saying that it's cool." He said, "This is Maya, or illusion." 
So this is what's called an anarta. It's a so-called value, but then you put an A in front of it, it means like you're saying it's a, a value, but it's actually valueless. And so when Nirkul is talking about anartas, it means I may have accumulated these attachments that aren't worth anything. They don't do anything for me or anybody else, but I'm just attached to them for no reason. Did you want to finish? Um, yeah, so as I said, it's just, it's just doing the, the process and having patience. Okay. Have faith in Tamesha and Ananda Murari. And then whoever is that with the mask, I can't see anything except your eyes. Well, <laughs> just to kind of, uh, kind of piggyback on what Grandma was saying, <clears throat> I remember two, two things. So I remember when I had first started, when I first joined and I was traveling with the devotees around and we were going to music festivals and distributing books. And uh, I, ha I really liked this band called Radiohead. And they had not performed together for so long. And then this one year that I happened to be traveling around to different music festivals, they were performing at Bonnaroo. And, uh, and I remember, I'm like, anyway, I'm here doing a service. I'm here doing something else. And I was falling asleep after a day of distributing. And I, uh, I like woke up, and it was probably like 10.30. And I woke up, and in the distance, I heard Radiohead playing on the stage their set. And I was like, wow, Krishna fulfilled that desire. Like I... You know, but <laughs> he, he fulfilled that desire in such a way that I didn't need to get entangled into something. And, uh, and I've seen that consistently, that, that just the process allows um, the fruition of things that I need to get out of the way in such a way that, uh, especially if I stay close to the Vaishnavas, in a way that I'm, I'm fortified and I move forward. This is a really good point you brought us to. Let's look at uh, a purport that talks about this. Tenth Canto, please. 10, 14, 8. You just put it up on the screen. So this verse says, it, it describes uh, an attitude, a state of consciousness that an advanced practitioner of bhakti comes to, which is to become aware that everything that's happening to me in my life is meant to purify me. It's benevolent. If my attitude in life is that I will uh, never be inconvenienced and I'll work really hard at never being inconvenienced, uh, that won't happen. But then I'll also be disappointed every time it happens. So this verse says, in, in this verse, Brahma is saying that the person is uh, highly ex expectant that uh, he or she will receive the, the full course of devotional service in due course of time, as Nirkula said, by being patient and going on with the process. And that whatever is coming to me now is meant for my purification. So let's look at the translation. It says, Brahma says, scroll down, please. My dear Lord, one who earnestly waits for you to bestow your causeless mercy upon him, all the while patiently suffering the reactions of his past misdeeds and offering you respectful obeisances with his heart, words, and body is surely eligible for liberation, for it has become his rightful claim. 
purport. Everyone ready? On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 means completely ready. Seven, who said 7? 11. Okay. Srila Sridhar Swami explains. Srila Sridhar Swami is a teacher of bhakti from many hundreds of years ago. So way, the way these commentaries work is that the present devotees who translate and give commentary, they refer back to previous teachers who are known as luminaries. We have that in science also. For instance, if you go to a science class, you'll hear about who? Copernicus and Newton and so forth. And we accept their findings as axiomatic truths upon which we build our own study of science. So Srila Sridhar Swami is one of those great devotees who's recognized by everybody and his um, common comments are therefore woven within the present commentaries. Srila Sridhar Swami explains in his commentary that just, a, just as a legitimate son has to simply remain alive to gain an inheritance from his father, one who simply remains alive in Krishna consciousness, following the regulative principles of bhakti yoga, automatically becomes eligible to receive the mercy of the Personality of Godhead. In other words, he will be promoted to the Kingdom of God. The word susamikshamana indicates that a devotee earnestly awaits the mercy of the Supreme Lord even while suffering the painful effects of previous sinful activities. Lord Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita that a devotee who fully surrenders unto him is no longer liable to suffer the reactions of his previous karma. However, because his mind, in his mind, a devotee may still maintain the remnants of his previous sinful mentality, the Lord removes the last vestiges of the enjoying spirit by giving his devotee punishments that may sometimes resemble sinful reactions. The purpose of the entire creation of God is to rectify the living entity's tendency to enjoy without the Lord. And therefore, the particular punishment given for a sinful activity is specifically designed to curtail the mentality that produced the activity. Although a devotee has surrendered to the Lord's devotional service until he is completely perfect in Krishna consciousness, he may maintain a slight inclination to enjoy the false happiness of this world. The Lord therefore creates a particular situation to eradicate this remaining enjoying spirit. This unhappiness suffered by a sincere devotee is not technically a karmic reaction. It is rather the Lord's special mercy for inducing his devotee to completely let go of the material world and return home back to Godhead. A sincere devotee earnestly desires to go back to the Lord's abode. Therefore, he willingly accepts the Lord's merciful punishment and continues offering respects and obeisances to the Lord within his heart, with his heart, words and body. Such a bona fide servant of the Lord, considering all hardship a small price to pay for gaining the personal association of the Lord, certainly becomes a legitimate son of God, as indicated here by the words diabhak. Just as one cannot approach the sun without becoming fire, one cannot approach the supreme pure Lord Krishna without undergoing a rigid purificatory process, which, um, which may appear like suffering 
but which is, in fact, a curative treatment administered by the personal hand of the Lord. Okay, discuss amongst yourself. Everyone uh, just turn to somebody next to you and then uh, tell what you, tell the person next to you, whoever you can find who will talk to you, um, what you took away. One, one uh, unique point that you took away from this. Are you ready? Say yes. yes. Okay, go find somebody. And if there's an odd person out, make sure you bring them in your group. So if you want to report what you've found out in your research group, that would be helpful. Achuta. Thank you so much, Prabhu. This is such a wonderful class. Um, and uh, during discussion, you know, I met uh, His Grace uh, Timirnandi Prabhu, and then uh, we both were discussing that in this purport, the remnants of sinful reactions, if there is anything left over, then the Lord, in order to remove that, gives certain punishments to, so that the devotee will finally come out of those remnants of sinful reactions. For an external person, it may look seemingly as a karmic reaction, but it is not, but it's a favor of the Lord. And while discussing, we also had a question, right? So if, if a person knows if these remnants of sinful reactions exist, and if the devotee tries to overcome, first of all, the question is, can he overcome by his own? Second thing is, if he overcomes, then will the Lord, does, do they have to still go through the punishments? The answer is yes. One, uh, uh, one uh, may endeavor to overcome these anartas. I'll, I'll give you the evidence why I say this. Uh, Giri Rajmarsh tells a story about how when Prabhupada used to, uh, when he was in the midst of having his books translated into Marathi, there was a, a young man who was an expert in both English and Marathi who was translating them, and he would come to meet Prabhupada to show him his translations. And the young man brought his father with him. The father was aware of Prabhupada's position, and was a little bit uh, repentant because he had this bad habit of smoking. And he had mentioned it to Prabhupada. And then when, after a third time they had come together, Prabhupada had asked him about it. And he said, you know, to give this up, I need your special mercy. And Prabhupada said, Krishna can give you special mercy, but it means it will make you miserable so miserable that you'll be forced to give it up. So would you like that? And he said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it myself. <laughs> so um, let's, just to answer that question a little more completely, let's look at Bhagavad Gita 1866. Because there'll be no harm to your life or devotional service if you read this verse in purport every day. 1866 in Bhagavad Gita. It'll start your life anew every single day. And I think it goes to, the, to answer your question. At least 95%. It's coming, right? Yeah, it's coming. 
So Krishna says, abandon all varieties of religion and just surrender unto me. I shall deliver you from all sinful reaction. Do not fear. In fact, I, I just on a side note, when I was just in the UK, I was talking to a devotee who was telling me that when he's out presenting Bhagavad Gita, sometimes people object and say, I'm not into religion. So he turns to this verse and says, look, see, this says to abandon all varieties of religion. <laughs> just thought I'd pass that along. Purport. The Lord, get, get ready, are you, what level are you on now for hearing? 11? 11 is where you want to live. The Lord has described various kinds of knowledge and processes of religion, knowledge of the Supreme Brahman, knowledge of the Supersoul, knowledge of the different types of orders and statuses of social life, knowledge of the renounced order of life, knowledge of non-attachment, sense and mind control, meditation, etc., he has described in so many ways different types of religion. Now, in summarizing Bhagavad Gita, the Lord says that Arjuna should give up all the processes that have been explained to him. He should simply surrender to Krishna. That surrender will save him from all kinds of sinful reactions, for the Lord personally promises to protect him. In the seventh chapter, it was said that only one who has become free from all sinful reactions can take to the worship of Lord Krishna. Thus, one may think that unless he is free from all sinful reactions, he cannot take to the surrendering process. To such doubts, it is here said that even if one is not free from all sinful reactions, simply by the process of surrendering to Sri Krishna, he is automatically freed. There is no need of strenuous effort to free oneself from sinful reactions. One should unhesitatingly accept Krishna as the supreme savior of all living entities. With faith and love, one should surrender unto him. The process of surrendering to Krishna is described in the Hari Bhakti Vilas, 11.676. Anukulyasasankalpa pratikulyasivarjanam rakshishyat rakshishyatiti vishvaso koptritve varanam tata According to the devotional process, one should ex simply accept such religious principles that will lead ultimately to the devotional service of the Lord. One may perform a particular occupational duty according to his position in the social order, but if by executing his duty one does not come to the point of Krishna consciousness, all his activities are in vain. Anything that does not lead to the perfectional stage of Krishna consciousness should be avoided. One should be confident that in all circumstances Krishna will protect him from all difficulties. There is no need of thinking how one should keep the body and soul together. Krishna will see to that. One should always think himself helpless and should consider Krishna the only basis for his progress in life. As soon as one seriously engages himself in devotional service to the Lord in full Krishna consciousness, at once he becomes freed from all contamination of material nature. There are different processes of religion and purificatory processes by cultivation of knowledge, meditation in the mystic yoga system, etc. But one who surrenders unto Krishna does not um, have to execute so many methods. That simple surrender unto Krishna will save him from unnecessarily wasting time. One can thus make all progress at once. If and be freed from all sinful reactions. 
One should be attracted by the beautiful vision of Krishna. His name is Krishna because he is all-attractive. One who becomes attracted by the beautiful, all-powerful, omnipotent vision of Krishna is fortunate. There are different kinds of transcendentalists. Some of them are attached to the impersonal Brahman vision. Some of them are attracted by the super-soul feature, etc., but one who is attracted to the personal feature of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and, above all, one who is attracted by the Supreme Personality of Godhead, as Krishna himself is the most perfect transcendentalist. In other words, devotional service to Krishna in full consciousness is the most confidential part of knowledge, and this is the essence of the whole Bhagavad Gita. Karma yogis, empiric philosophers, mystics, and devotees are all called transcendentalists, but one who is a pure devotee is the best of all. The particular words used here, ma shuchaha, don't fear, don't hesitate, don't worry, are very significant. One may be perplexed as to how one can give up all kinds of religious forms and simply surrender unto Krishna, but such worry is useless. It's useless. So there's a sense here, a strong sense, that we have volition, and Prabhupada gave this example once when there was a gentleman who was making the proposition that one needed adhikari to surrender. Adhikari means some kind of uh, qualification. And then Prabhupada interrupted him and said, no qualification necessary because we have volition, free will, at any time we can decide to do this, despite any uh, anartas or lingering desires. And he said, if you're uh, a poor person and you're languishing in your life and then a rich person comes with a big bag of money and says here I'll give it to you you just take it then you have two choices you could take it or not take it and so when Krishna says take it then you can say okay I'll take it or you can just not take it or you can wait I'll take it later so uh, that's available if one comes to this cognition that why should I wait? Why not just surrender? May not have answered your question, but yes, Anandamari and then Parikishori. I just heard this morning Srila Prabhupada said, <clears throat> uh, he said, to become Did you perfect. Did it on your red box? Out of my red box. Okay. Uh, he said, to, not be, or to become perfect is not very hard. It's because you do not want to be perfect. That's Oops. why you're not. <laughs> so I was like, it was, but just to this point of, you know, and I reflect on my own life, like how much, how much really have I been given? Like that's not really a question. There's really no lack in what I've been given, but how much have I received or how much have I taken and like taken up? And that's where I'm lacking. Nice. Really helpful. Preekishori. So I just wanted to share a few things you discussed and um, also about this verse, uh, 10, 14, 8. Um, typically when we read this verse, it's always been bitter and I always look at it uh, from the form of why does one have to pay for one's sinful reactions? And this time when, I, when you were reading it, I realized that this is not a matter of justice. Krishna is not holding us... Um, 
um, to a test and, and making us suffer simply for the sake of suffering. This is purely under the basis that he wants us to build a relationship and feel genuine emotion towards him and reform our consciousness, which is at such an advanced level um, of, of truly building a sacred bond in Krishna consciousness. And um, also speaking to uh, Sukeshri Mataji and Pavani Bhakti Mataji, they were sharing a few examples of how they saw that Krishna placed them in situations in their life where he helped them overcome their desires and um, come, combat with them. And even though that seemed on the top that it was completely undesirable over the years, it seemed um, that, wow, this is Krishna's personal hand. So I love that aspect of Krishna's curation. Really nice points that you made. And um, yeah, I just wanted to comment briefly on justice versus mercy. So in the material world, when, I'm, when I don't surrender to Krishna, I get justice. Because the material world is perfectly just. It's balanced in such a way that if I poke somebody's eye out, then I get to feel later what it feels like to get my eye poked out. And, and that's justice, and it's meted out perfectly. Human justice may not come up to that mark, but... Divine justice does, and that's the material world, karma. Getting exactly what we deserve for purification's sake, to, make, to sensitize us to be, uh, so that we, can be, we become more um, adept at thinking of ourselves as spiritual beings and reaching our full potential. A mercy, that's different. And for instance, if, if you ask, like, give me exactly what I deserve according to everything I've ever done in the material world, we may not be so eager for that. But mercy means that I'll overlook that because you've put yourself at the um, mercy of the court, basically. If you go to the court, as an example for bankruptcy, I don't know the, re the recent the latest uh, bankruptcy laws, nor do I know the old ones, actually. <laughs> but there is a way in which I do have a little bit of a sense that when you can't pay your creditors, let's say you're a legitimate business, you can't pay your creditors, and the court, the judge, has the authority to hold off all your creditors so that you can reorganize your business so that you, know, you can give them a reasonable sum back. So you can live, you can survive. And you put yourself at the mercy of the court. I can't, I can't pay this off. So there's a kind of sense of that in the Sarvadharma Prityaja. There, in fact, it says in the uh, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu that there's so much karma the living entities have. There's also in the, in the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras that you can't enact it all. You can't experience it all in one lifetime. You can only get a little portion. The rest of it's in huge warehouses, just piled up for as far as the eye can see and waiting. So, you know, you can have enough lifetimes, which will never happen, in order to experience it all. And then if you realize, like, I can't deal with all that, so I need to put myself at the mercy of the court. And then Krishna comes in, opens his briefcase and says, who would like to sign here? <laughs> He's like, I'll volunteer. So th then we're not, getting, we're not getting justice, we're getting mercy. It's a better proposition. Malini. Um, I have a question. Um, 
I was uh, talking to Alina. Uh, sh- she says she's a um, little new in Krishna consciousness, but I feel that her realizations were very profound. And uh, she mentioned about the Tattenu Kampam verse that um, it's saying that we just have to be alive uh, to inherit the kingdom of of the Lord. But she said that while you're being alive, it's not a jolly ride. It's going to be things will come at you. Mm. But while things come at you, you tolerate them and you stay alive. That is what this verse is talking about. So she, she, she really liked that part. And she had a question about the word punishment that is mentioned. And, it's, and she, she seemed to think that it's a bit harsh to say it's a punishment uh, when we are talking about the all-merciful Lord. So would you like to comment on yes, that? Yes, I would. Uh, in, for instance, rearing, and very insightful about staying alive, but staying alive, you may say, well, that's easy. It's like <laughs> there may be intractable situations and uh, very difficult times in staying alive. However, it's, a, it's a, such a simple concept, just one way or another, stay alive. That's all we're asking of you. <laughs> and then you'll be successful. As far as punishment goes, punishment's not necessarily bad. Consider, uh, of course, we can look up the word. I mean, it's related. Uh, look at the etymology of the word. But as far as the context goes, think of, for instance, okay, I know somebody in Japan, they have this philosophy about raising dogs, which is you just never tell them anything. If you never tell your dog anything, like don't jump up on people, then when they grow up, what do they do? They jump on everybody. And you know, when you come to somebody's house and then the dog comes and jumps on you, like all over you, and it's raining and there's paws marks everywhere, uh, and they say, don't do it, the dog's like, I don't recognize that command because they haven't been, quote unquote, punished. So punishment isn't necessarily, it, it's not just to inf- out of envy to f- inflict some uh, suffering on somebody. What does the word mean? Our research department needs a dedicated microphone. Punishment, noun, the infliction or imposition of a penalty as retribution for an offense. For what? An offense. An offense, okay. So consider kids also, if you're raising a human being and you don't give any boundaries. You know, a child may consider it a punishment. It's like, I want to watch video games until midnight. And then you say, you can't watch video games until midnight. You can watch them for two minutes. No, I'm just a day. Uh, or, or, and then, you know, you have to go to bed at a certain time. And a child may take this as punishment. But which child do you think has a better... Um, prospect for success, the one that you just say, you just do whatever you want. And anything you want will will give you anything you want, and you just uh, do as you wish. Or the one where there's a well-meaning adult who knows how to uh, help regulate the child, and then the child actually becomes strong 
because he or she had some direction, which may seem to be punishment, but is actually uh, something given to us to make us better. Like sometimes a doctor will say, okay, you have to take this medicine. It's very bitter. And I might say, oh, or somebody might, he's making you take that stuff? He's like, yeah, but it makes you better. So the punishment in, in this context is, this is the meaning. Did, you, did we get the etymology of that? Um, it comes from Old French, punis, um, to punish, and then Latin, correct, chastise. Correct is a good one. It, it, you know, you can look in the word and see what it means. And in the context here, it means to correct, to make us uh, more fit, actually. That's the sense. Not, not uh, wanton punishment just for its own sake. That's the idea. I mean, that's really the theme of the verse. And that the, the universe is set up in such a way that the punishment's built in when we go off the line. Like drunk bumps on the road, you're bang, 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 when you hit your tire, means you're, you're in danger, you're going off the road. So similarly, when we, when we have those kind of noises in our life, that, that means we're going off off the beaten path, and there's danger. Thank you for sharing. Those are great insights. Okay, we got a couple more. Please give Sham Rupa a mic. Uh, we three were a group. So Mario Prabhu, he shared very nice realization. He said that the pain usually takes us away from whatever we are doing, if we feel pain, we tend to go away from there. But uh, if it purifies us, then it is very good. And we can go towards that source. And Dibya Shakti Mataji, she also uh, supported that same point, And she said, uh, the suffering that we go through, uh, a devotee goes through, that is actually Krishna's blessings. Very nice. That's a good example also with pain in the body. If you feel pain, it generally means something's wrong. Like there's something, an ingrown toenail, that's why it hurts. So it needs to be corrected. And this is nature's way of telling us something about our body. And in the sense in this verse today too, when we're feeling some kind of pain, it's like, okay, maybe I should realign myself. And that helps us. It's the point that's given throughout the Bhagavatam, it's all benevolent. And I'll just tell my uh, bird story one more time because it always fits here. And then if, if you're up for it, we'd like to do uh, to move on with the program, like maybe some announcements or something like that. Is that possible? Yes? Okay. So one day, gardening in our backyard spring day, windows were open, and a little bird flew in the window. I s saw him go in there from my vantage point from the backyard. So a wild bird in the house is not a good idea. So I went in, and I told my little friendly bird, 
or at least I was friendly, that I would like to free you from this horrible situation you're in, in the, being caught in this house. And the bird looked at me like, you're after me. So he flew to the next room. And there I thought, I'll open the windows for you so you can get out. And while opening the windows, it seemed as if it was a kind of drastic type of measure, this huge giant pulling things up and the noise. And out of fear, he flew to the next room. And I did the same thing because I thought any advantage opening the window, he might be able to see it and fly out. We went through the whole house. He flitted from one room to the next in, in terror. And then finally, we went all the way around and came back to the kitchen where the bird had flown in in the first place. And then we had this moment of communion. I saw the little bird notice that the window was open and then look at me and communicated the following through his glance. You tried to kill me. You chased me. You did, you demonstratively tried to smash me or do some, you were doing some kind of <laughs> drastic activity that was not for birds. But now I see my way out and I'm going to fly away. And suddenly he jumped from the crown molding and then flew out the window. And I sat down a little bit emotionally exhausted because I had this sense that I'm that little bird. That Krishna is opening all these windows saying, no, no, go, go out, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, you're trying to kill me. I have my uh, perspective, little bird brain perspective of the world. I can't see the cosmic uh, justice or even, uh, or especially mercy. And then I have no recognition or gra gratitude even for what's happening to me. But this verse says that if somebody becomes fully aware, then that person is full of gratitude, actually. Then I'm being given an opportunity to rectify everything. There's some parameters that I can follow. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Raga dvesha vimuktaistu vishan charan. That if someone can become aware of the fact that there are parameters to follow in human life through which you can elevate yourself, and then he or she adheres to those, gladly adheres to them, then Krishna says, such a person is going to get full mercy. We avail ourselves to it by changing our attitude towards what's happening to us from, I'm being punished, I'm being chased, I'm, I'm being... Um, tortured even, to actually, there is a way out of here. And it's following the reasonable parameters. And lo and behold, actually, as soon as somebody starts to follow those, he or she feels naturally happier, happier and satisfied. And this is a symptom of advancing in spiritual life. Okay, so... Um, I'm just going to, that's it for the discussion, because next we're going to have announcements. And after that, we have um, either Guru Puja or some, depending on how long the announcements go, or a um, 
a couple of uh, short presentations on the Bhagavad Gita by some of the kids. But I want to read directly from the, uh, the Bhagavatam, just a few verses, because I wanted you to hear the, the letter that Rukmini Devi wrote to Krishna and had delivered through a brahmana. Sri Rukmini said in her letter, as read by the brahman, O beauty of the worlds, having heard of your qualities which enter the ears of those who hear and remove their bodily distress, and having also heard of your beauty, which fulfills all the visual desires of those who see, I have fixed my shameless mind upon you, O Krishna. O Mukunda, you are equal only to yourself in lineage, character, beauty, knowledge, youthfulness, wealth, and influence. O lion among men, you delight the minds of all mankind. What aristocratic, sober-minded, and marriageable girl of a good family would not choose you as her husband when the proper time has come? Therefore, my dear Lord, I have chosen you as my husband, and I surrender myself to you. Please come swiftly, O Almighty One, and make me your wife. My dear lotus-eyed Lord, let Shishupal never touch the hero's portion like a jackal stealing the property of a lion. If I have sufficiently worshipped the Supreme Personality of Godhead by pious works, sacrifices, charity, rituals, and vows, and also by worshipping the demigods, brahmanas, and gurus, then may Gadagraja, that's a name for Krishna, come and take my hand and not Damagosha's son or anyone else. O unconquerable one, tomorrow when my marriage ceremony is about to begin, you should arrive unseen in Vidarbha and surround yourself with the leaders of your army. Then crush the forces of Chaidya and Magadendra and marry me in the Rakshasa style, winning me with your valor. Since I will be staying within the inner chambers of the palace, you may wonder, how can I carry you away without killing some of your relatives? But I shall tell you a way. On the day before the marriage, there is a grand procession to honor the royal family's deity, and in this procession, the new bride goes outside the city to visit goddess Girija. A lotus-eyed one, great souls like Lord Shiva, hanker to bathe in the dust of your lotus feet and thereby destroy their ignorance. If I cannot obtain your mercy, I shall simply give up my vital force, which will have become weak from the severe penances I will perform. Then after hundreds of lifetimes of endeavor, I may obtain your mercy. The Brahmana said, This is the confidential message I have brought with me, O Lord of the Yadus. He was presenting it to Krishna. Please consider what must be done in these circumstances and do it at once. Om Tat Sat. Please come take prasadam. Vanchakalparvishcha kripasindabhivacha patitanam pavanibhyo vishnavibhyo namo namaha nantakoti vaishnavini kijaya.